Our reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 17. The Lord's Supper. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for uh, judgment, but the other things I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there are a few things that um, express our friendship and our companionship um, with our friends. Uh, Quite like sharing a meal together, is there? When you think about, um, sometimes we kind of maybe just take that for granted. We don't give that much thought. But you think about who you choose to eat with. It's mostly your friends, isn't it? It's your family. Uh, might be people that you want to get to know better, people that you want to pursue a deeper friendship with. Let's go out for coffee. Let's go out for a meal um, together. We sit down at a table together, um, and it really is a fellowship that is happening at those tables. That's why we eat with the people that we eat with or choose to eat with the people that we eat with. The table is where hospitality is extended. It's where conversations uh, deepen our relationships and deepen our friendships. Sometimes, though, they're also where relational breakdown is, is felt in really awkward ways, too, isn't it? Maybe you've been to one of those awkward family dinners at holidays where there's been a bit of a row in the family or, you know, it's kind of extended family, people that you don't see very often, and you're there together because you're family, um, and it can be a little bit awkward. Um, it can be maybe a little bit uncomfortable. Um, you've had those maybe Christmas dinners, and you're just hoping a certain topic doesn't come up among your family right? Because it might get a bit awkward. Um, or maybe you have to go to a work, a work do or work outing, and you're hoping you don't have to sit next to that colleague at work that, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't choose to sit next to um, if, you, if you had an opportunity to. Meals um, do a lot of things, don't they? They tell stories. Meals carry values um, with them. Who prepares the meals? Who participates in the meals? Who's excluded from those meals? Um, Sue and I just came back um, celebrating our anniversary in Thailand, and I said to her, I'm like, if I were a filmmaker, it's the last time I mentioned it, all right? It's the last time I mentioned it. Um, But I said to her, if I were a filmmaker, what I would love to do is um, do some kind of a documentary, like investigative documentary around food and eating culture in in Thailand, specifically in Bangkok. Um, Because when you go there, uh, everything is on display. No one really eats inside. No one eats indoors. Everybody eats outside on the streets. So there's all these little like pop-up kitchens 
um, on the sidewalk, and they kind of go away in the morning. You come out in the morning, and they're not there, and kind of around lunchtime, they start popping up again, and you can see them cleaning and preparing food and cooking it, and it's all right there on display. Um, and you can eat very inexpensively. I mean, you eat great food inexpensively. But then there's also high um, elite, you know, Michelin-starred restaurants um, where you would have to probably save a few pennies if you wanted to eat there. Um, and everything in between. Um, and it's just fascinating to watch. I'm like, well, how does the food get here out onto the street? And because it's not like you don't see delivery trucks. And there's a whole mysterious kind of world there that I would love to explore because it tells a story. Um, where you're eating and, and what you're eating and who you're eating with, all of these things tell a story. And it's the same in Corinth at the time, right? This is an opportunity, um, as, as we've seen throughout uh, the book so far, we're into chapter 11 now, but we've seen in, in uh, really from the very beginning of this book, social status and um, these divisions that are popping up. And it's an opportunity in Corinth um, for for showing off or for gaining social status um, in these meals um, that you would go to, these dinner parties. Um, even in Jesus' time, as you see Jesus eating meals with people, um, often there's the meal itself in the, in the kind of main dining area. But then you'd have these atriums and courtyards where, where other people could kind of be and they could look into and they could overhear and they could see what was going on. And so these dinner parties... You could observe a social stratification that's taking place. Jesus actually is aware of this, isn't he? He tells his disciples, hey, don't, when it comes time for a meal, don't just presume that you're going to sit at the head of the table. Um, wait to be asked. There's social norms that are happening here. This isn't just a place where we're getting food. There's other things that are happening. And in Corinth... Um, we see what's happening again. We see these divisions. Paul mentions them um, again um, in, in verse 18. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there's divisions among you. Um, and he believes it because this is how the book started. Do you remember in chapter one, they were divided around uh, who their leaders were and who they wanted to follow and who they wanted to kind of be aligned with in their kind of worldview and social thought. There was divisions over food and idols and, and the kind of food we can eat and where we could eat it. There was divisions over that. There's divisions socioeconomically as these things get played out. And now this is showing up in their gathered worship. This isn't just the, the meals that they were meeting and eating, you know, as the week went. But this is when they were gathering together and gathered worship. Paul isn't being overly idealistic. He knows that there's going to be some divisions in the church. He mentions it in verse 19, right? He's like, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. So when the church comes together, um, not everybody in, in a gathering might be genuine believers. And so that's going to reveal itself in our life together, in the things that we value, in the way that we allocate our time, in the, in the way that we worship together. And so he's not being overly idealistic here. He knows that there will be light and there'll be some darkness even within the church. But he seeks to remove this schism. He's seeking to heal these divisions. And the Lord's Supper, in which he's addressing, the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, there's my many names, we'll refer to it as the Lord's Supper um, from the text this morning, is designed to be different than how the culture at large ate together. The culture at large was divided when they ate together. They were divided by class. They were divided by... Um, social status and, and economics. They were divided by gender at times. All these kind of different ways that they were divided up. But the Lord's Supper was intended to create something different. To sustain and dis to display an alternate community from the rest of the world around it. Their meal, this meal, wasn't just an ordinary meal. It wasn't just getting together to eat. It was, it was to carry significance as they gathered together for worship. It was meant to communicate something. It was meant to do something among them. And so our weekly gathering to partake in this meal, it gives us an opportunity to regularly, regularly enter into what the Lord has designed the meal for. It gives us opportunity to, to retune our hearts, as it were, to the Lord, to tune our heart to the work of Christ, of what he has accomplished, to recalibrate our lives around the gospel once again. But this isn't what's happening here. 
What happens when we come to our gathering together, particularly when we come to the table together, there's this vertical attunement that happens, right? We're tuning our hearts back into the grace of God, but that then affects our horizontal attunement within our relationships, or it should. And so I want to look at kind of three aspects um, of this this morning. Um, The first thing I want us to see is the significance of the Lord's Supper and community. Uh, So what's the significance of this? Why do we break bread and, 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 uh, have wine every time that we've come together. Um, there is this kind of vertical means of grace, a way that we are uh, receive grace from God. Now, not in a salvific way. We're not talking about a way that we sustain our salvation, right? Um, that's done through the literal body and blood of Christ being shed for us in his resurrection and us receiving that as the covering of our sins. But it is a way that, it is a way that we um, receive grace as nourishment, as a way that we recalibrate, re- retune our hearts to that. There's typically, well, there's, for the sake of time today, we're going to kind of condense how the church has historically kind of looked at the Lord's Supper in kind of three different ways. Um, the first one is the supper is kind of a memorial, right? So we, we do it basically to remember. So in, in this view, seeing the, the Lord's Supper's memorial, Christ is subjectively present in the mind of the believer. So we ask the question, well, where is Christ in the Lord's Supper? If it's his supper, where is he in that? In the memorial view, he's subje- it's subjective. It's subjectively present in the mind of the, of the believer. It relies on a person's ability to focus upon, to think through, to remember the death of Jesus. But then that asks this question, well, what happens if, if we don't or if we can't? Um, if we're not focusing or remembering on that, if our heart isn't inclined in that way in the moment, because I don't know about you, but sometimes when I come to church, my heart isn't always where it should be, right? There are times that I come here because I just know I should. It's like going to the gym. There are some times I'm, I'm excited to go. I, I'm, oh man, I'm looking forward to going and sweating out. And there are other times I just go because I know I should go. I'm glad I, I, when I do that, I'm glad. By the time I leave, I'm, I'm, I'm happy I went. But the supper as a memorial relies heavily on, a, on our kind of subjectively reflection on that. The second way sometimes the church historically has thought about the Lord's Supper is as a ritual. In this view, Christ is objectively present in the bread and wine. So this would be more of a, a Catholic view, another kind of Lutheran kind of view in, in some ways falls into this category. So Christ then is objectively present in the bread and wine. It's not mostly, in this view, it's mostly about a kind of uh, mechanical, mystical process where the elements of bread and wine are transformed into something that must be ingested kind of out of, into, um, we do that to fulfill our religious duty. It's impersonal. It, it, it's supposed to kind of work regardless of our relationship to Christ. In, in many ways, it's kind of the opposite, right? It doesn't really have anything to do with my relationship to Jesus or what I think about in that. The bread and the wine mystically transform into the body and blood of Christ, and we ingest that, and some, that, that works itself out in some kind of mystical way. Or there's a third way. This is the way that I think we... Uh, should view the Lord's Supper, um, as we see really in, in the Scripture. Look back in, into chapter 10, because uh, Paul's already kind of touched on this some. Look at uh, chapter 10, verse 16. He says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake of the one bread. This view is the Lord's Supper is spiritual communion. We are communing with. And so the objective reality of Christ's work is subjectively appropriated by the work of the Spirit. Christ has objectively done something in the breaking of his body, in the shedding of his blood. And the Holy Spirit appropriates that work to us in the Spirit. In this way, Christ really is present when we come to the table. Not in a physical way. He doesn't physically somehow manifest himself in the bread and, and the wine. But he is spiritually present among us. 
Not in some kind of mechanistic way that depends on what we do with the bread and the wine. But when we come together, when we come to the Lord's table, the Lord is present with us spiritually. So the believer's subjective understanding is important, but it's not vital. It's not instrumental. We commune with God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. We feed on His body to our spiritual nourishment and to grow in grace. Jesus is spiritually present with us when we come to the table. Corinth and the Corinthians had got this badly wrong. This isn't what's happening at all. Look at, listen to the words that Paul uses in a, in a very strong way. Remember, this is Paul um, advising on our life together, but the orderliness of worship as well. Um, verse 17, this is chapter 11 uh, that we're back to. He says, um, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. That's strong language. When you gather, you're actually worse off than when you, than when you, when you came together. May that never be true of us. Um, I don't know if you've been a part of a church that's been fractured or splintering or it kind of ends really badly. Um, unfortunately, I've, I, I've, I've seen that happen. Um, and you understand that you walk away going, man, I feel worse off now than when, than when we were a part of this at the beginning. And look at what he says in verse 20. When you come together to eat, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. Whatever it is that you're doing, whatever it is that you're calling this, even though there might be bread and there's wine and you're, you're calling it the Lord's Supper, and this is meant to be a worship gathering, it's not. What you're doing is not that. Strong words. Whatever they were doing wasn't making them better. It was making them worse. They were not growing in grace. And so there's the, ser- the significance of the Lord's Supper in community. It plays a significant role. It's one of the reasons why we celebrate the Lord's Supper here every week. Now, we're not commanded in Scripture to do that. Um, it says, as often as you do it. Um, but one of the reasons that we do do it every week, or we're con- convinced and convicted to do that every week, are for these reasons. It's significant. It retunes our heart. God meets with us in a, in a special way. He is present with us. The second thing I want us to see is the seriousness of the Lord's Supper and, and community together. They are coming together, and whatever they're doing is not the Lord's Supper. It's making them worse. And Paul wants to stop the, unmanner, the unworthy manner in which they gather. They're gathering together in a way that's unworthy or unbefitting to call this a Christian community. And certainly the practice, the sacrament that, they, uh, that the Lord instituted, that he commands us as his people to, to do, this isn't what they're doing. And so Paul wants to curtail the unworthy manner. He's trying to correct them. The better that the church should have been displaying in, com- um, displaying in this meal together is the fact that common divisions in society were being overcome. Here they are actually enacting them in the same way that society was. So whatever they're doing wasn't displaying anything different. An onlooker wouldn't have seen anything different in this meal that they were sharing. Look at how he describes what they're doing in verses 18. In the first place, when you come together as a church, so this is them gathering together as the people of God, I hear there's divisions among you. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine be recognized. Um, Verse 21, when they're eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. So they would come together and each would bring food. They would bring their own meals together. They would bring food together. But instead of sharing that together, they were just eating their own. One goes hungry, another one is indulging so much they're getting drunk. He says, do you not have your own house to eat in? If all you're doing is eating food, if this is just a a normal kind of like, hey, we're just here to, to satiate our hunger and our thirst, don't you have a house to do that in? Why are you gathering together as the people of God if that's all you're going to do? If we're gathering together as his people in a visible way, for a meal that's different, that the Lord actually instituted as his supper. Why are you even coming together to do this? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No. He's like, I'm not, I can't commend you in this. 
Everyone's just eating their own. They're not sharing. Those who, who didn't have or didn't have enough are being humiliated and being embarrassed. Now, juxtapose this to what we see in Acts chapter 2. Um, you can turn there if you'd like. I'm going to read the end of Acts chapter 2. This is the beginning of the church. And the church is, is first beginning. And listen to the description of the fellowship of the believers here. Acts 2.42 And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. So here we have the Lord's Supper and prayers. And awe came over every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's not what's happening in Corinth. They don't have things in common. They're being divided. And when they're coming together even to celebrate the Lord's Supper, they're not using even the common food together. Now, how, how were they doing that? How did they have all things in common? Verse 45. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, day, by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness, with glad and generous hearts. These are not glad and generous hearts in Corinth. These are stingy, selfish hearts in Corinth. What do glad and generous hearts then produce? Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is what's at stake in Corinth. People are not going to be added to their number. People are not going to come to know the grace of, of Jesus because they're not acting as, as people who have experienced the grace of Christ. They're just acting like the rest of the world. Even when they come together supposedly to celebrate the Lord's Supper, it's done selfishly. It's not with generous hearts. I brought my food. You don't have any? That's on you, I guess. Sorry about that. The church is the place, or it's the people, where we approach God's gifts to us. Food, wine, being some of those. With orderly, God-glorifying enjoyment. We're to enjoy that, but we're to enjoy that in a way that glorifies God. They're not doing that. The Corinthians, were over, some of them, were overindulging at the expense of other people. When we eat a common bread, a common loaf, when we drink from a common cup, there's a reason for that. It's symbolized. It's a visual representation of our union with Christ. The common divisions and disunity of the world around them should be seen as being overcome by the death and resurrection of Christ. The very meal that we're partaking in, we're proclaiming what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection. That should be then seen in that meal and how we participate in that meal as a witness to what Jesus has done. And part of that is that we are united together with people that we wouldn't normally be united together with. People of different socioeconomic backgrounds, people of different genders, people of different races, people of different educational levels in us because those aren't the reasons that we're uniting together we're uniting together because we are united to one another in Christ that's not how the world acts the world eats with parties with celebrates with invites into homes shows hospitality to those who are like them that they like or that they can benefit from And this is what's happening in Corinth. The way that they're worshiping doesn't actually display the gospel. It's not bringing them together. It's not breaking down social barriers. It's actually constructing them. The world tends to marginalize, alienate the other because they're not like us. And rather being concerned for them, we place ourselves at the center and we ask them to revolve around us. But this is antithetical to the gospel. It's not how the church should be. It's not how Christians should be. The church, we've come together equally before God with Christ and his work, the gospel at the center. We come together to celebrate that, not us. We come together to commune with God together. As I mentioned before, how they would gather together for food and dinner. Um, obviously, they're meeting in homes. Um, usually, um, probably wealthy people that would open up their home um, had bigger homes um, within that. 
And within these kind of homes, you'd have a, a dining area. <clears throat> this would usually fill up early, early with people who could come early. Um, usually that was wealthy people because they could come at their own leisure. And they didn't have to wait till they were kind of off work, as it were, to come. And then you had the adjacent kind of atrium courtyard. Um, these would come kind of with latecomers. Usually this is probably going to be more working class people who, who have to come when their work is finished, when they're done. So the, the, the good places, as it were, the places, the people who could come with the most food are already there. And they, they're not waiting, as we see. They've already, the party's already started. Dinner's already started. Food's already been eaten. You could understand then how you come to that with not much to bring. How that is kind of humiliating, isn't it? You're kind of on the outside looking in a bit. You don't feel like you're a part of. There's divisions. Some didn't have the opportunity to participate or to share in the way that Christian unity demanded it be. Paul says that they've profaned the Lord's Supper beyond recognition. Whatever this is, it's not the Lord's Supper. They weren't remembering Christ's body and blood. They weren't proclaiming anything different than what society, societal dinner parties proclaimed. There was no distinctiveness. They were not being an observable alternate community of Christ. And this is Paul's main concern. There's no distinctiveness in this. You're not honoring you're not adorning the gospel in the way that you're remembering the gospel. Verses 27 and 28 then, he says, whoever, eat, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ, the, the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For, who any, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. There's a few phrases here. What does Paul mean? What does he mean by guilty concerning the body? If we eat in a, in a manner that's unworthy, we're guilty concerning the body and the blood of Christ. What does he mean by that? We're guilty of actually shedding the blood of Christ. We're, we're not placing ourselves with those who share the benefits of his death, but we're among those who are responsible for it. This is he gets at it before. There's some of you who are not genuine. There's factions. Some of you are genuine that you'd be recognized in that verse 19, but some of you aren't. What does he mean by discerning the body? What does he mean by discerning the body? And if we don't do that, then we drink judgment on himself. There's a couple different things that discerning the body could mean. I don't know that we have to choose. I think they're both appropriate. Um, one, it might mean referring to the body, referring to the body of Christ, the church. So we're not giving due weight to the church being the body of Christ. And so there's divisions among us. We're not viewing our brothers and sisters as part of the body of Christ. We're not giving it its due place and weight. Or he could mean, secondly, they were actually failing to recognize the special presence of the risen Lord in the worshiping community. And particularly in the, as we come to the table together to celebrate the sacrament. I think they're two sides of the same coin. I think they're the same. You wouldn't do one without the other. You would do both of these. And so there's a seriousness to this. There's a weightiness to it. So much that he actually attributes, hey, some of the reason that some of you are weak and sick and some of you even died is the Lord's judgment upon you for this. That's, that's a serious kind of weightiness, isn't it? That the Lord would judge um, someone within his church in that way. But Jesus says the exact same thing. Jesus says the same thing. What does he say? In multiple places throughout the scripture, you can see it in Hebrews and, and other places, but in Revelation 3.19, the actual words of Christ, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And this is what Paul is reminding them of. Some of you are being disciplined by the Lord because he loves you. But it's time to change. It's time to, to repent. Jesus cares about our worship and our witness. And he cares so that we won't be condemned 
um, with the world. He gives us those very reasons. Verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. He disciplines those whom he loves. Why? So that we may not be condemned along with the world. It's an opportunity for us to recognize and to repent. Am I actually a believer? And if so, why, why am I not living in any kind of distinct way from the rest of the world around me? And so let's um, start to end by looking at the third thing. The actual grace of the Lord's Supper. If it's serious, if it's significant among his people, then what is it for? What's the purpose of it? Um, and we see this as really the Lord's Supper is a means of grace to us. And it's a means of grace in, in a few different ways. There's a historical kind of grace at play. It's what Jesus has actually done in history. Verses 23. He says, for, this is, um, he's explained this. For what I received from the Lord, I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. This is the Lord instituting this sacrament for us. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this is the cup uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We look back to Jesus' historical work on our behalf. It's a new covenant that he establishes in the Lord's Supper. It's a sign, it's a seal of Christ's redemptive work in history on our behalf. Behalf of fractured communities like the one in Corinth. Christ is the loyal one who, even though he was betrayed, is obedient to death so that you and I might receive the loyal love of God. And it's rooted in this covenant promise. It's the fulfillment of this Passover lamb. Notice he says this is the new covenant. This is one that was fulfilling the old covenant. If you remember we, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus comes and he fulfills the old covenant. And he, and he, he begins a new, a, a new covenant. It's a sign and seal of his redemptive work on us. And it's rooted in his covenant promise. Notice what he says. This is my body. This is my blood. Those aren't the words that someone leading a Passover uh, would have used. Because it wasn't their body and it wasn't their blood. It was the blood of a, of a spotless lamb. It was, it was the body of a lamb, a substitute as it were. It was the body and blood of a substitute that fulfilled them for them. Jesus then fulfills this and says, no, it's my body. It's my blood. I am the substitute. I am the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. And this is how we proclaim his death. It's the breaking of of his literal body on the cross that binds us together as his spiritual body of Christ. And we remember that in the body and blood broken and shed for us at the table, the bread and the wine. It's the communion based on his relentless grace that removes the barrier that was there uh, toward us and God. The veil has been torn. We now have access to God through his body and blood broken and shed for us. But then that has horizontal implications as well. It, it breaks down the race, the socioeconomic. We're not divided by gender and age anymore. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. We are all one in Christ for those who have received the work of Christ. And so this historical grace looks to the past of what Jesus has done for us. But it also looks to the future. Right? Verse 26 ends. Um, we proclaim the Lord's death for how long? Until, uh, endlessly? Forever? No. Until he comes. So it's looking forward until he comes. The Lord's Supper calls us to look forward with hope. We look back to Jesus' completed work and on, the, on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and now we look forward as well. The Lord's Supper does both. We look back and forward. It it proclaims our sustenance and our sufficiency of Jesus' death as our salvation and hope. We look forward to a new meal, the actual marriage supper of the Lamb, 
where it won't be me presiding over breaking of bread, but it'll be Jesus himself with nail-pierced hands serving the table that you and I will get to partake of if we are in Christ. So there's a historical grace, but there's also a personal grace that takes place. Right? We see this in verses 27 to 29. Whoever eats the bread of, of, uh, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. Let a person then examine himself and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now note it says it's in, whoever does this in, in an unworthy manner. It's not an unworthy person or an un, unworthy individual. The only people that should be partaking of this meal are followers of Christ. Those that have repented of our sin are, are relying on the death and resurrection of Jesus to forgive us our sins, right? So it's Christians that are partaking in this meal. And so if, if, if you're a believer this morning, all of us are unworthy. That's the reason Jesus has to die in the first place. But once we're united with Christ, it's not that you're an unworthy person. It's that we can come to the table in an unworthy manner. If we all had to be worthy as people, none of us are qualified to come to the table. We're all disqualified. If we were worthy, you don't need this in the first place. The reason Jesus dies is because we're unworthy. And so we come, sure, as unworthy people, but covered in the blood of Christ. But there's a way that we can still come in an unworthy manner. We can come in an unworthy way. And the way that we do that is the way that the Corinthians were doing it. They were just indifferent. It wasn't as a means of grace. It wasn't as a, a means of repentance. It was indifferent. They had unrepentant hearts. One person, one commentator said this, if we're afflicted by sin, that is if our sin bothers us, if we're wrestling with sin, if we're afflicted by sin, then the Lord's Supper is a comfort. It's a means of grace by which we remember the way that our sin has been dealt with. But if we're comfortable with sin, the Lord's Supper becomes an affliction to us and a means of God's judging us. We don't come as perfect people, for no one would be able to come. We come as people who know that we're imperfect, but we're wrestling with, we're struggling with, we have repentant hearts, we're that's the, the Christian life is an examined life. The Christian life is a, is a life of ongoing repentance. And the Lord's Supper is a means by which we, we confess that, a means by which we retune our hearts uh, to the gospel once again. We receive his body broken for us, his blood shed for us, as a way to remember and to proclaim the gospel. We apply that to our hearts. That it's a meal that we nourish God's grace on once again to make it through another week. Because I forget the gospel. I forget the means of grace in which I meant to walk. God gives us grace at the table so that we're encouraged to enjoy it, to relish it, to feed on it, to be nourished by it. And then the last grace that we, we receive is a communal grace. So there's a historical kind of grace of what Jesus has actually done. There's a personal individual grace in which I receive that, of which I need to examine my own kind of heart. Not that is there sin there or not, because there, of course there is, but what am I doing with that? What's my attitude towards that? And then thirdly, a communal grace that we experience uh, together. Verses 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another or to be considerate of one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things that they had written. I'll give directions when I come. The grace of God needs to permeate not just our own individual hearts and our relationship to God. Of course, that's where it starts. But then it needs to permeate our relationships with one another, particularly those of us that are united to Christ together, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so if there are ways that we are encouraging social racial, sectarian stratification, we need to repent of that. The Corinthians needed to repent of that. 
As I read this text, I just wonder historically in Northern Ireland if, if the church here is weak and anemic because of, our, because of our sectarian sins that parts of the church have participated in, doing the opposite of what the Lord commanded us to do and be. We're to wait for one another. They were to consider one another when coming together to proclaim the gospel together. They were literally to prefer one another. It's hard not to think of Philippians chapter 2 when you hear these words. You can turn there if you'd like to. Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, same language that Paul's using, that we participate in the body of Christ, in the blood of Christ, if we are to participate in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind, having the same love, a common love, being in full accord and in one mind, be united together, don't be divided. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's what's happening in their meal. Being selfish. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This meal is a cruciform meal. We think of other people. The gospel permeates our heart so that it affects our relationships with others. We're considerate of others, those that might have need among us. How can we help meet those needs? I'm always encouraged to hear uh, stories from our missional communities of people in need and brothers and sisters in Christ rallying around to meet those needs, whether that's in time of sickness or in suffering, um, providing food, food, providing meals, helping arrange transportation, helping covering stuff at work, whatever it may, be, may kind of be, financial needs. This is the way the body should act. And I'm encouraged when we, when we are like that. If you remember when we studied the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 16, there's this amazing picture of this being played, played out. There's three converts that, we're, that we see in Acts chapter 16, all existing together. You've got Lydia. Um, more than likely, the church met in her home. She's a businesswoman. You've got a slave girl, and you've got a, a Roman jailer, a Roman soldier. All three converted to Christ. All three very, very different people. Lydia is from Asia, the slave girl is probably Greek, and the Roman soldier is Roman, Roman. all from different cultural backgrounds. Lydia is white-collar business, professional woman, Um, she's wealthy. The slave girl is poor, in poverty, has nothing, and you've got a Roman soldier who's working class, blue-collar. Even the way they would have had a cognitive approach to things. Lydia's rational, executing her business. The slave girl's more intuitive. The Roman soldier, relational. All very different people, probably of different ages, different backgrounds, socioeconomic makeup, different education levels, and yet all united together in the gospel so that they are able to call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. What else would bring people like that together? What else unites people like that together? Politics? I don't think so. There was a common prayer that Jewish men would have prayed often. And it went something like this. I thank God I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. That's exactly what we see in in Acts chapter 16. (laughs) A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. That's the parable that we see in Luke, right? The man who goes to the synagogue 
and says, I thank God I'm not like this sinner. That's the hard attitude of coming to the table in an unworthy manner. And I think I ought to like those people. And then it's the sinner, it's the tax collector who's humbled enough not to even raise his eyes to heaven, beating his breast, asking God to have mercy on him. And Jesus says, it's him who goes away justified. It's the sinner. It's the tax collector. It's the outcast. But it's the repentant who know that they're all those things. Who throw themselves at the mercy of Jesus and his body broken for them and his blood shed for them. The gospel, particularly as it's embodied in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, dismantles all of that. It invites us all to the communion with God in Christ through the Holy Spirit and being united to one another as we partake in one common meal, one common loaf, one common cup. We proclaim what the Lord has done by participating in that in a way that's worthy of that with repentant uh, hearts of humility, but also hearts that are generous toward one another. Hearts that are united together, a church united together, not because of our political status, not because of our gender, not because of we're the same age, not because we all like the same coffee, not because of any of those kind of marginal silly things, but because of our common union with Christ, because of what he has done for us. That is how we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Oh, what a glorious coming that will be. For all the divisions, all of our factions, all of the results of our sin that we struggle with, are all wiped away, all taken away. Where we're able to know God fully, we'll also be able to know one another fully in ways that we can only dream and imagine of now. May the Lord, by His Spirit, um, as we come together in orderly worship, continue to shape us, to change us more into that alternate community, more into a, a community that, by the way we worship, actually is a demonstration and a witness to the world around us. As we leave this place, as we interact with people around at our workplace, as our neighbors, with family members, with those people that you wouldn't maybe choose to invite out to lunch, may God continue to give us grace that we would be like Jesus, that we would see more people, that God would add more people to our number, that we would have to have more bread and more wine We would have to extend our table um, because God is adding to our number daily. God help us in that. Let's pray. Father, we confess um, that our natural instinct, our natural kind of reflex is uh, just to place ourselves at the center of worship. It's how we got here in the first place. Not recognizing you for who you are. And trying to break out on our own, do things our own way. And so, Father, we confess that that's our our natural bent. Without the Holy Spirit empowering us, without your word guiding us, uh, without the presence of Jesus here with us, um, Father, we would would end up much like the Corinthians. It's only by your grace um, that we don't end up the same way. Um, Divided, devouring ourselves from the inside out. Father, we thank you for the the grace that you have given us in this area of being united. Father, we know that we can grow in that more, and uh, we ask that you would grant that to us. And so, Father, now as as we come to the table once again, as we break bread and hear those words proclaim the body of Christ broken for you, as we dip it in wine, And hear those words, the blood of Christ shed for you. Father, may we come in a way that is worthy of that. Not perfect people, not sinless people, or none of us would would take a step forward at all. Um, But people who recognize our need for your grace, who are inviting that into into our lives um, through lives of repentance, 
lives of humility, not thinking more of ourselves than we ought to, thinking of others more significant than ourselves, because that is the way of Jesus. That is the mind of Christ demonstrated in his body and blood broken and shed for us. And so, Father, as we say, we want to be a community that is shaped by the gospel. We want to be a gospel-shaped community. And, Father, your Lord's Supper, your communion, the Eucharist, the table, is one means by which you continue to extend that grace to us. And so, Father, as we come, may we just be manifestly aware of your presence here among us this morning. This isn't a ritual that we go through, just to, well, that's just how we end our service. It's not just something we kind of do because, uh, well, we've been doing this a long time and this is what we should do. It's, we don't do it because it's kind of cool. We don't do it for any of those reasons. We do it to commune with you, to meet with you, to experience uh, a measure of your grace bestowed to us, remembering the gospel itself, remembering the death of Jesus and the implications of that for our life, the implications of that for our life in community. And so, Father, I pray that you would grant us uh, clarity, um, that, we would, that you would deepen our understanding of the gospel, of this meal, um, that we would be aware of our own hearts in that, but the implications of that, of even just being aware of how we are in community with one another. This isn't an individual meal that we take in on our own. You can't take the Lord's Supper on your own. <laughs> it's a meal that by definition takes place in community. And so we pray that you would nourish us, that you would strengthen your body again this morning, that you would soften our hearts, that we would be repentant, convict us of sin, particularly relational sin even. If there's people that we need to seek forgiveness of, or that we might have offended, Father, would you just make that easy to do? Would you bring those people to our mind? May we have the mind of Christ this morning. May we be people who are quick to extend grace and forgiveness, to ask for it, to admit our faults and wrongs. Because we are a community of grace, grace upon grace, as demonstrated at the table. Would you do it among us again this morning? By the power of your spirit, we ask. Amen.